Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on the 12th of January uh, 2018 at approximately 3.30 London time. It meant to start at 3 o'clock but myself and uh, Mike Boyle, today's guest, just uh, talked for a bit longer than expected before pressing record. But anyway, we're here now. So, as I said, today's guest is uh, Dr. Michael Boyle, who's an assistant professor of political science at LaSalle University in Philadelphia. He has previously been a lecturer in international relations and a research fellow at the Center for Study of Terrorism and Political Violence at the University of St. Andrews. He is also an alumnus of the political science department at LaSalle, where he is now teaching. His research interests are on terrorism and political violence with political reference to, uh, with particular reference to strategic use of violence in insurgencies and civil wars. He has also published more broadly on security studies in American foreign policy. His writings have appeared in a range of scholarly journals and popular outlets, including regular columns for The Guardian. His most recent book, Violence After War, Explaining Instability in Post-Conflict States, was published by John Hopkins University Press in March 2014. We'll be talking about that book uh, shortly. But first, Mike, thanks so much for, for being on today's podcast. Thank you for having me, John. So how did you get involved in this area of research? Well, it's a, it's a sort of, I got to terrorism really through political violence. Um, I first started to look into political violence when I was a graduate student, um, and it actually came from an experience I had as in a policy context. So in around um, 2000 or so, I was an intern in the State Department, a relatively low-ranked, uh, unpaid intern in the State Department, and one of my jobs was to read accounts from the Balkans of political violence and to report this to senior policymakers and to develop a response from the U.S. government's vantage point. And what I started to notice, and I was particularly focused on Kosovo at this time, that was the desk that I was put onto, was that there was a kind of regular strategic use of violence after the war had ended in Kosovo against minority communities, against uh, particularly victimized groups like the Gypsies and others, um, that was used as almost kind of a form of violence as communication, that it was a signaling form of violence, that there was still a kind of bargaining process going on in the post-conflict environment. And so I got really interested in the notion that what sort of falls between war and peace, and much of the literature, especially around that time, it's, it's very much changed today and it's much richer today, really had a very sharp bifurcation between war and peace. And, and you would get these papers that more or less implied, well, once there's a peace element, the violence stops. And I became more and more convinced that actually there was lots of transactional violence that was going on once peace settlements were still in place. Um, so I initially pitched this to do as a master's thesis that I was doing for my public policy degree at, at Harvard. Um, I did a, a first sort of cut of it there, looking really at the U.S. response, and became convinced there was something in the, in the topic to do on violence that was below the threshold of threatening a peace settlement. Um, much of that violence, by the way, was described as spoiling following Stephen Stedman, but that was really violence directed at a peace settlement. I was really interested in violence that was maybe criminal, transactional, but didn't threaten a peace settlement. And so I proposed this as a, a doctoral dissertation project at Cambridge, and I went back to Cambridge where I had done my MPhil before that and wrote my dissertation looking specifically at Kosovo. Um, I went to, um, I went to uh, Kosovo itself. I did a lot of field work and interviews. I must have done you know, a, a lot of violence and data collection. And what was exciting about the dissertation project was I got crime statistics from the UN. 
And that was one of the very first times that we were seeing crime statistics delivered by international organizations that they were actually beginning to collect crime statistics. They really hadn't done that prior to that point. And it was proving the point that there was a lot more violence than was being popularly reported. Um, so really, when it comes to how did I get into terrorism, I first really got into political violence. Um, I moved into terrorism later when I started to look at terrorism as a kind of form of violence that you saw in post-conflict states, and then later developed much more sort of research in terrorism when I became a lecturer at St. Andrews. But I really look at myself as somebody who came to terrorism through political violence rather than coming to terrorism first. And this this doctoral research that you're talking about, um, I'm right in saying that this is this is the book by, published by John Hopkins uh, University, Violence After War, Explaining Instability in Post-Conflict States. Um, could you go a bit more in depth into what exactly your findings were what, uh, and what were the, the case studies uh, outside of Kosovo as, a, as well as Kosovo that you, that you, that you looked at? The, the, yeah, so the dissertation was almost like a prototype for that book, and it really focused exclusively on Kosovo, and I was interested particularly in um, the distinction between expressive and strategic forms of violence, that you saw some attacks that were described as revenge attacks, but in fact, actually, there was a strategic orientation to a subset of them, uh, and I called that reprisal violence in the dissertation, and I later published an article that was a sort of shortened version of the dissertation's argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I sort of threw that framework out for a variety of methodological and empirical reasons and tried in the Violence After War book to broaden the frame. And there were a couple of reasons I did that. One is I thought that, that there was purchase in thinking about this from beyond just Kosovo. So I added other case studies on Bosnia, on East Timor, on Rwanda, and on Iraq. Uh, and part of it is as I developed the book, the Iraq War unfolded. And you had a lot of what you might describe as you know, violence within the insurgency, but in some cases also sort of post-conflict violence, depending on when you think the Iraq war ended, um, which is obviously an open question. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I, I started to work on this, and, and Iraq really is what got me thinking a lot about uh, how terrorism particularly was used in those environments, because what you started to see was mass-scale sort of indiscriminate violence. So among the sort of chief findings of it, and, and the way that the book sort of is structured, is to say really there are two sort of methodologies or pathways that you can see towards using violence in post-conflict states. And the first is a sort of direct pathway where it's the existing combatants attack the peace process. And that's, I think, what's been studied most in the literature. What I think the book added was a discussion of what I call the indirect pathway, where the existing combatants fragment. And when they fragment, they become factionalized. When they become factionalized, they fight not only by attacking each other, but oftentimes by attacking third parties as a way of signaling their strength. And so in particular, if you go back to the Kosovo example, you could see cases where um, small cells of what used to be the KLA disaggregated into smaller violent groups. They attacked Serbian communities and other minority communities like the Roma as a way of signaling their strength. Um, And I saw that dynamic also working the same way in Iraq, saw that dynamic working the same way in Bosnia and other places where minority communities would be victimized, not because of anything they were particularly doing, but because if you had this kind of factional violence, um, it was a very good way of signaling your strength, signaling your capacity to to harm other people. And so the Violence After War book takes that framework of sort of direct attacks on the peace and indirect attacks on the peace and applies that to the five cases. Um, I also developed a data set in there to track violence in post-conflict states in a sort of medium-end data set of about 52 cases where I really wanted to prove that many of the cases that we think are more or less stable, like East Timor, there's actually a surprisingly large amount of violence. Um, I also went to Bosnia and East Timor um, for that book. So I spent some time in Bosnia, 
uh, collecting crime statistics from the UN and also interviewing uh, people who are in particularly victimized minority communities. Uh, and I also spent some time in East Timor, so I have a collection of the East Timor's original crime statistics. Um, um, what kind of what kind of violence are we talking about here uh, that would be out of the ordinary for an equivalent state, uh, for an equivalent non-post-conflict state that you're seeing here in these post-conflict states? Uh, it's a really good question because, I mean, there's a normal sort of cr ordinary level of criminal violence that mm. happens. And distinguishing in a lot of these post-conflict states, um, you know, whether a particular attack is strategic or criminal, whether an attack has to do with a personal dispute between two people or has to do with the larger political dispute you see in the society itself, that's actually extraordinarily difficult mm. to do. Uh, and one of the things I do in the second chapter of the book is I do a very long discussion of intentions and contextual information for how you um, – interpret violence. I often joke that the second chapter of the book should be described as a therapy session. It's me working through all of these issues, trying to say, you know, yes, I'm aware all of these things are extraordinarily difficult to do. Um, but in terms of the patterns of things that you would see in post-conflict violence that looks unusual, uh, certainly you would see cases of where you would see um, organized murders in patterns, expulsions tied to violence. So we saw on both Kosovo and Iraq, particular communities murdered and expelled at the same time in a kind of ethnic cleansing operation. Um, you also sometimes saw patterns of arsons. Um, so you would see large numbers of houses burn at the same time. Okay. And that's what I became interested in looking at is, well, so what sort of patterns look like they're strategic? And it is a really difficult problem. I mean, if you were someone standing in a post-conflict environment, here you are, you're watching murders happen, arsons happen, reverse ethnic cleansing. You know some of it's criminal, some of it's personal, some of it's strategic. Mm -hmm. And you have to sort that out and make a determination and understand that while having a kind of low information environment, you may not speak the language, you may have only been in the country for three to four months. It's a very difficult thing for a peacekeeper or others to do. And what I was really trying to do was, was say to people who work in those environments, either in a police or peacekeeping capacity, here's a model or a framework by which you can interpret this, even if it's not always clear that this specific violent act is expressive or strategic or criminal. Um, so with that in mind, with the, from the peacekeeper's point of view, what, would you, what advice would you be giving them about, okay, we have this knowledge here, we, we have this data of this post-conflict violence? What should they do with that? What, how, well, how can that impact how they, uh, how they do their jobs? The most important thing that I, I argued from the book was to stop what I would describe as a kind of um, frozen view of the conflict. And what I noticed when I went and did interviews with a lot of peacekeepers is they would come in and they would, they would come with a very static view of the conflict. Um, so in Kosovo, they would say, well, there are Albanians, there are Serbs, and they often broke it down into almost kind of moralistic categories. These are the good guys, these are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Well, first off, you have to throw that category out in post-conflict violence. You have a responsibility to protect people who are vulnerable, people, people who are innocent, you know, whether they're on the right side or the wrong side of the conflict. So the first aspect is that. But the second thing is that I found that the sort of major cleavages of the conflict itself shift over time. And so it's not always an ethnic or a political dispute. What you fight the war over is not often what you're fighting the post-conflict violence over. And it, particularly you could see this when the violence shifted to questions about local control, sectarian organization in the case of Iraq, uh, even control of criminal rackets. Much of the Bosnian violence that you saw in the post-conflict period had nothing to do with Serb, you know, with the Serb versus Muslim versus Croat. It had to do with criminal rackets. It had to do with local political violence. And so what you'd want peacekeepers to come in is to say, well, I'm not just going to come in with a view that there are good guys and there are bad guys, there are two groups and they're fighting about the same thing they fought about in the war. That what they fight about changes in the post-conflict settlement very dramatically and that those categories have to get a bit unsettled. Yeah.
And I suppose even if we're not, if we're looking at the conflict environment, not just the post-conflict environment, that the reason that a conflict continues can be very different from the reason that a conflict starts as well. So that even not in a post-conflict environment, but in a conflict environment, you have to consider those things as well. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that the literature has gotten much better about doing is looking at varying motivations um, for why people fight. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if you were to look at what's happened in the last 10 to 15 years, certainly when I started my dissertation, there really wasn't a great discussion of that. And there wasn't a lot of good empirical research, whereas today there's a lot of people doing some interesting empirical work looking at why people fight and what explains their motivations. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, is something that's really interesting to watch. And a dominant theme throughout your, your book um, and throughout our discussion already is about the fragmentation of these combatants. What was leading to the, to the fragmentation or was there or was it just multiple reasons that you were seeing? So with the fragmentation, uh, what was interesting about that was I think we tend to create this kind of uh, assumption that armed groups are like states. Uh, and in fact, actually, they're not. Right? States have a lot of mechanisms of internal policing to sort of make sure that the military does what the government wants it to do. And obviously, that breaks down when you have weaker states. Uh, armed groups are much, in many cases, are much more collections of factions than they are um, single organized groups. And the fragmentation itself, what you found in a lot of cases was that uh, rebel organizations managed to hold some minimal degree of organizational cohesion during the war itself. When you got to the post-conflict period, that cohesion broke down and fell apart. And part of the reason it falls apart is because they don't have ways to reward and punish their members, that it's a carrot and a stick sort of dynamic. And so if you're a, a rebel group in a post-conflict environment, let's say you've been excluded from the peace settlement, let's say you have no greater assets than you had during the war, you can't pay off and maintain uh, organizational control over your members. And what you start to see is a lot of freelancing and violence. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an important thing to remember is that you know most armed groups, not all, but most armed groups, they vary very substantially in, in cohesion, and some of them are quite low in organizational cohesion. And that means that you get a lot of fragmentation, you get a lot more violence that is interfactional criminal violence, uh, bargaining over local control, than it is about the sort of larger issues of the war itself. And were you seeing that this post-conflict violence was consistent across the whole of the, the, the countries that you're looking at, or was it very much localized? Very much localized. And, and that was what was interesting as well, is that if you looked at these environments, they were often local contests for control. Mm -hmm. And what you saw was that where it was violent in the post-conflict period was not often where it was violent in the war itself. Okay. And that was because the violence, the, the, the sort of dimensions of the violence would shift to different regions where there were criminal activities, where you might have a, a very strong particular local faction. Uh, and that became one of the more important things. Is people tend to say, well, this was violent during the war. It's going to be violent in the post-conflict period. And in fact, actually, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. there, there's often a very dramatic shift um, from that. So what would the predictors be then of where would be a, a violent post-conflict region within the country then? Or are there... Are there key predictors? Uh, there are some key predictors, but it, it's not it's not something you can sort of put into a quantitative model yeah. because so much of it's idiosyncratic. I mean, the, the bigger things that I found is where you had uh, small victimized minority communities in very small numbers, mm -hmm. then you were very likely to see high levels of ethnic cleansing. Where you had disproportionate economic resources, you were very likely to see, um, for example, lootable resources, you were very likely to see high levels of criminal violence. Yeah. So that explains it more than, than the war itself. Okay. And one of the things about uh, about this book, and when we look specifically at the case study of Iraq, is that you're utilizing uh, data obtained directly from U.S. Central Command. Now, this is the, yes. the first time that we've seen this published. Um, could you tell us a bit about the uh, these data and like 
how did you get get access to them and um and what were they telling you specifically that your other data was not so the Iraq data was an interesting experience in this. I, this was during when the Iraq war was, uh, the Iraq insurgency was particularly violent in 2007, 2008, when the, war, the insurgency had really picked up. Um, I started trying to find some way to collect it, and there were a number of different sources. The, the Iraq body count did a very good job mm -hmm. of collecting data. There were a number of other places, and I used Iraq body count data for a different paper that I had written. But I decided to just to try the federal government and to try it through its Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and what I did is I discovered that if you went to the right part of the United States government, you could FOIA certain types of data. Um, and I managed to get for Kosovo and for Bosnia a lot of um, diplomatic cables and so on and narrative reports that were written about both of those cases talking about what the diplomats saw on the ground in terms of the violence. Um, for the CENTCOM data, I actually contacted CENTCOM directly and Freedom of Information Act requested that. It took two years to get it. And what they produced essentially was a redacted version of the violence. And what surprised me about it was the degree to which they had fairly good records on sectarian violence, which makes a judgment about motive, right, that they had much more rich data on the degree of sectarian violence than they were revealing to the public. Um, and so that's why I thought it was so important to put that data into the book. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a valuable resource to have and to to be able to to critically analyze and, as you said, be able to to look at it with the eye, uh, with the fresh eyes and go, well, do we have to rethink what the motive was here as well? So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's eye opening eye opening data. And as always, I would encourage any of our listeners to to read in depth the the pieces that are discussed here. There are links to it on our website uel.ac.uk/terc, and uh, you'll be able to to find links to this book and to the other pieces that we're going to talk about now. Included amongst this is the talk about the research that influenced you. Um, at the time of your PhD and throughout throughout your career as a researcher. And the first piece that you selected for us um, was Paul Wilkinson's 1977 piece, Terrorism and the Liberal, Liberal State. Um, wh what was it about this piece that, that you found influential and what did you take from this? Well, this was the first book that I had read from Paul. I read this before I read Terrorism uh, versus Democracy, and I had the pleasure of working with Paul um, at St. Andrews when I was part of the CSTPV for a number of years between 2006 and 2010. Um, and what I, what I was particularly influenced by this, and what I think Paul made a better case for than most other people, um, was the degree to which terrorism as a form of political violence baits liberal democracies into overreaction. Uh, and if you actually go back and start with that book, he doesn't actually start with a straight sort of empirical description of terrorism. He actually starts with a discussion of liberal theory, uh, going back to Locke and Montesquieu and Madison and making an argument that liberal states um, have an obligation not only to provide rights but also to provide order. And I think one of the things that Paul emphasized in this was that liberal states have an obligation to provide order, but he also emphasizes they had a moral responsibility to use the minimum amount of force. And it's a different way of thinking about a liberal states. So more often than not, when we think about liberal states, we think about rights and responsibilities and participation. Paul thought about liberal states as um, one about the social contract and about how they might maintain basic political order to allow other life to economic life and social life to happen, but also how they had a moral obligation to limit the use of force. Part and parcel of that is that he recognized that terrorists tend to bait liberal states into overreaction. And I think that's the most important part of his book. Mm -hmm. um, and Paul was, I think, um, in many cases, an old-fashioned liberal in, in a way that people don't see anymore, an old-fashioned sort of John Stuart Mill-influenced law and order liberal. <laughs> and what he argued in the book was that you had an obligation to provide basic political order. He does not suggest that you can involve um, sort of violent 
or nonviolent forms of protest. He's all in favor. If you read the book, he talks about how liberal democracies have to have and have to allow noisy politics. You have to allow civil disobedience. You have to allow disruption strikes, for example. You have to allow that. But when it, it goes into violence, liberal states have to not succumb to the temptation of being extraordinarily violent in response. And if they do, they'll gradually disfigure their own character. And do you, st do you feel that, even though this was written back in 1977, that this, this still holds truth today? I think it does. I mean, if you look at some place like the United States, what you see is a country that is a liberal democracy that has been baited through the use of terrorism into sacrificing quite a bit of its civil liberties to allowing the creation of a vast surveillance state and to engaging in things like torture in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and other places, uh, as well as engaging in violence outside its own borders. Um, and if anything, the political climate in the United States has become more hostile to liberty in a lot of ways since 2001 uh, than it was prior to that point. And what Paul would argue, and what Paul did argue at the, right before he passed away, was that the United States was making a series of mistakes. He was opposed to the Iraq War. He was horrified by Abu Ghraib. This is exactly what liberal states have to not do. They have to be extraordinarily careful in the use of force not to allow themselves to be baited. And, the, and terrorism in the liberal state is the first real articulation of this, starting from the obligation that the state has to the citizens to allow them to protest, and then the obligation that the state has not to use excessive amounts of force. Yeah, it just it, it, it just goes to show how important it is not to just focus on the the research and the writings that have come out post 9-11, but something as far back as that. It, like, there's some truly classic pieces um, published around that time by Paul and others, and so often and at the moment they're ignored in a way and we need to we need to be able to know our his the history of this area if we're to be able to to understand how how to counter it how to to, to counter what's going on today uh, we can learn from the past as well yeah and i mean they were operating in a very different context yeah. I mean, the predominant form of violence that, that they were looking at is very different than the violence that we saw today but the basic problem of what does the liberal democracy do when a small subset inside its states decides to break the rules of normal protest and engage in a huge amount of violence, that's still the same problem that we face today. Yeah. And so there is something about how you should be minimal in the use of force and how you have to make sure that you don't disfigure your own character. And I saw terrorism in the liberal state is the, is the first real clear articulation of that. I think clearer than some of the later things that came out as well, clearer than that. Mm -hmm. And where do you see, where do we see this influencing your research? Now I can, I can see it in your, in your work on drones and, and elsewhere, but where do you see it influencing your research the most? Well, I mean, this has been a predominant concern of mine, not to make sure. I mean, one of the things Paul would remind us, and he does remind you if you go back and read the book, is that the origin of terror is from the state terror of the French Revolution, and mm -hmm. that one of the greater dangers is that states will themselves engage in terrorism. And so in my own work, I've been concerned in a number of cases in trying to get the United States to fight um, a war on terror that doesn't disfigure its own character. That there has to be some answer at the end of this, where the United States doesn't look like a radically different state. That we don't look at ourselves in the mirror in 25 years and wonder what happened to us. And I've, I've articulated this in different ways. I've articulated this in a couple pieces in international affairs that looked on the war on terror and tried to put that in the context of U.S. grand strategy. It's also related to the work on drones in the sense that um, I'm concerned that drones te technologically will make war too easy for liberal democracies, mm -hmm. that they can manage the problem through a form of kind of high-level technological imperial policing, and 
essentially allow that drift to continue. And so what you see throughout a lot of the work that I've done on counterterrorism has been an attempt to put counterterrorism in its place, not, not to make sure it recognizes that it's a real problem. I'm not in any way saying counterterrorism is not, you know, terrorism is not a, a serious threat, but then it needs to be put in its place and not to distort other priorities. Mm -hmm. So you can see that in some of the international affairs pieces that I've written, uh, and you can see that in uh, some of the work on drones, that same concern with limiting the power of the state. Yeah, and we might as well get on to the discussion of that, that work on drones now. It, um, it does fit in well. It, the, one of the pieces that you've highlighted of your own um, for us to discuss today is the cost and consequences of drone warfare, which was published in International Affairs in 2013. Um, in order to, to set the scene for us, could you tell us who uh, Faisal uh, Sassad is, um, just to, to set the scene for this article? Sure. He was, he was the New York City bomber, the Times Square bomber. Um, and what he did was in his trial, he was arrested for trying to blow up a, a truck in the center of Times Square. And in his trial, he made a grandiose statement, as a lot of these guys do, uh, but he pointed out that this was in response to drone strikes. This was in response to uh, you know, the Obama administration's relentless increase of drone strikes from 2012, 2013, and onwards. Um, and I used that to set the scene of an article which then laid a, a series of critiques about drones um, and about the overuse of drones, particularly for counterterrorism purposes. And um, um, what were these critiques of drones? What, what do you feel are the costs and consequences of drone warfare? So the, I, would, I would put it into sort of two sort of broad categories. The first critique that I made in the piece was to say that we are often told that they are strategically effective, that they are able to kill a lot of bad guys in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, and that they're constantly, by decapitating the leadership of these organizations, um, they're degrading their capacity and hurting their ability to strike the United States. There have been a couple of studies that have suggested that at the minimum they do produce organizational pressure and degrade the capability of states. So I'm not suggesting that drone strikes are never effective or that you should never use a drone strike. That's not what the paper argues. But it does argue, to, to argue that you shouldn't conflate tactical effectiveness, in other words, I killed this particular person who was a potential threat, with strategic effectiveness. That what we leave off the ledger when we measure drone strikes is whether drone strikes, for example, increase the recruitment to militant organizations, whether they encourage militant organizations to adapt in new and interesting ways that make them actually more resilient. And so there are a lot of questions about the strategic effectiveness of this that aren't answered by the question of they killed this particular bad guy at this particular time. And I wrote it because I was very concerned that the Obama administration had begun to use um, drone strikes much more often than had been predicted. Uh, they started from the Bush administration using it relatively selectively to using you know, a couple hundred a year and also broadening the frame of drone strikes to attack militants that were much lower down in the organizational I made an argument in the piece that if you do that, and the more sort of death and destruction you inflict lower down on the organization, the more likely you are to have secondary and kind of tertiary strategic costs. The second big critique that I made in it was that there's a normative consequence to it, and this is something that I've, I've kind of followed in a couple different other pieces, that there's a normative consequence to this, that the United States broadly is better off living in a world under which fewer states use violence outside their borders and under which extrajudicial violence is rare. And by using, by essentially asserting for itself the right to strike anybody in the world who might be connected with Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or an affiliated group, the United States might be issuing in a series of normative changes and precedents that are going to be exploited by other states. And that's not a world that you want to live in. You don't want to live in a world under which we sort of return to the law of the jungle and states brush state borders aside to be able to engage in this kind of violence. So I was arguing for prudence. That doesn't mean that you'd never use a drone. And it doesn't mean, because I don't think that's realistic. I mean, drones exist. 
They are widely used by a number of states at this point. You're not going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle, but that you should be extraordinarily careful and prudential about it and careful not to create norms that you don't want to see on operation. And you were focusing not at drone attacks within the theater of war. You're actually focusing on case studies of drone attacks outside the theater of war, drone attacks within Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen. A lot of people wouldn't really know that these are going on as much. What exactly is the purpose, uh, the stated purpose of, of drone attacks within these, uh, within these regions and, or within these countries? And what's the legality of it? So the legality of it is very questionable. Uh, the United States has asserted that it has a right of self-defense against any organization related to al-Qaeda, ISIS, and others, even outside the borders of the states under which they're fighting. In other words, it's a non-territorial war. That's a legal interpretation that a lot of other countries don't accept. Uh, and it's a very dangerous legal interpretation because you could see, um, you know, for example, Russia, China, another state turning on saying, we're going to attack a dissident organization against our government anywhere in the world into which it's located. So the legal argument that the United States makes is not widely accepted. Um, the strategic argument is to say that we can't allow these organizations to regroup outside borders. If they're in places like Yemen and in Pakistan and Somalia, we need to chase them where they are because they, the more they are able to train and develop co coherent operatives in those places, the more likely they are to threaten the United States. That's possible. And it's certainly there is some evidence. I'm not suggesting that if you, you know, had someone who was imminently planning an attack on the United States in Yemen that you shouldn't use something to try and remove them. But you need to be very, very, very careful about doing this. I mean, since we've seen this happen, what we've seen is the expansion of drone strikes to more and more theaters. The Trump administration now has the ability to strike to use drones and special forces in a large number of places in North Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere. And you have to be extraordinarily careful that you're not fomenting more instability than, than you're essentially eliminating. And you, you mentioned Trump there, as the, this article focuses on, um, on the Obama administration's use of drones. What kind of data do we have about the, in, in these early days of the Trump administration's utilization we, of drones? We have not a lot of data. And, and I, this is something that I will say, and I, I say this as a Democrat, um, that I will lay at the feet of Obama. Uh, Obama asserted that most of the drone strike infrastructure would be within the executive branch. And he only very late in his administration authorized any kind of congressional reporting or public reporting of drone strikes. He did it very reluctantly and without a lot of data and made a number of assertions that, that people who have looked at the data very carefully have said can't possibly be true that they were this accurate and they killed this few civilians. Uh, Trump has actually shut down a lot of those mechanisms to disclose what the U.S. is doing in terms of drone strikes. And I think this is the great danger. If you build an infrastructure of targeted killing inside the executive branch of the United States government, you have to accept that it's going to go to whoever you hand over the government to. And that's where I think Obama was extremely short-sighted. Um, there was some evidence to suggest actually before the election in 2012, he began to write a drone playbook. Uh, in order to make sure that he was handing over a program that was properly, legally, and bureaucratically governed to Romney, should Governor Romney had won the election. Well, then that got pushed aside for a number of years. Only at the very end of his second term did he again start to try and create kind of rules on the use of force, publish some guidelines. Trump basically took over and ripped most of it up. He's loosened the standards on the use of drone strikes, and he's killed most of the public disclosure. And this is something I think the United States needs to think about. If you're going to build this infrastructure, you're going to hand it over to someone like Donald Trump, and you have to be comfortable, comfortable with the consequences of that. And so I would rather see a much more limited program with a degree of sunlight provided with congressional accountability, with even court scrutiny, than to create a, a secretive targeted killing program that's then handed over to Donald Trump and then pushed back to the end behind the shadows. 
in the, oh, and we go on. Go ahead. No, that's okay. In the in the article as well, you talk about um, three different aspects that I want to. I I think it's important for the the listeners to hear about. You talk about uh, the targeting of funerals. You talk about the aspect of double tap attacks and the deaths of children as a result of drone attacks. Um, could you could you tell the listeners what it was that you found uh, through your analysis about these three different aspects? And what is starting off with double tap attacks? What are they? D- double tap attacks are where you would strike someone. You'd strike someone who was a militant, and then you'd wait to see who comes. Uh, to deal with the the medical emergency that you would have or, or the death and destruction that was created, and then you would strike again. That's a double-tap strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see the strategic argument behind it. If I kill a very senior bad guy, it, whoever's going to come is very likely to be affiliated with their organization. The problem is that you're also mixing that up by attacking first responders, police, and even civilians who want to come and see what the big noise was about and what the explosion was about. Mm-hmm. And so double-tap Double tap strikes are potentially very, very dangerous in the sense that they're very likely to kill civilians. Um, you do see cases under which children have been killed through drone strikes. I do think that the United States is trying to be careful about that. I don't think that there's a – this sort of characterization of the United States as gratuitously killing children is simply not true. I think they are trying to be careful about that. But if you are – Killing people that are living in residential areas, or if you are a case under which you are targeting militants that have embedded themselves in residential areas, you will inevitably kill children as part of it. And one of the things that has been pointed out by a number of legal organizations is attacks on funerals are particularly dangerous. Again, the same logic as a double-tap strike. You wait to see who comes to mourn the person who's been killed, and you strike again. Um, Now, that may seem like you're eliminating more bad guys. The problem is that that's probably a war crime. And the United States needs to be very, very careful about deaths of civilians and potential war crimes associated with the use of drone strikes. In fairness to Obama, as the drone strikes increased in 2012, 2013, he produced a series of regulations in 2013 that then reined it and made sure that double-tap strikes, strikes on funerals, and strikes where there was a high probability of civilian casualties then stopped. The problem was that that was just an executive order. And once it's an executive order issued by one president, it can be revoked by the next. And, and with regards to, to drones, and it's not mentioned in this article, but I think it's important to get your take on it. There's, there's oftentimes the talk of drones not used outside one's borders, but used within uh, one's borders. What have you found uh, from your, your drone research in relation to this, or is it a lot of uh, scaremongering? Uh, it, there's a degree of scaremongering associated with it. I mean, certainly we're seeing drones used for domestic purposes in the United States and the UK and elsewhere. And to some extent, I, you know, I'm not anti-drone in every way. So, yeah. for example, if you have a case under which police are looking for a missing child, I'd be more than happy to have a drone patrolling a rural region to find a lost child. I mean, yeah. there's no reason not to have drones doing things like environmental monitoring and conservation mm-hmm. and others. I think the greater danger with drone use within borders is that you're going to start to see it's going to be able to increase the surveillance capacity of the state itself, going back to some of the traditional arguments that Paul made about limiting liberal states. Um, and what we know with drones is that drones are now able to patrol cities. They are able to patrol over domestic areas. There are good legal restrictions on that use in the U.S., U.K., and other places. But in some other countries, we're seeing drones being used for domestic surveillance and even targeted killing within the borders of the states themselves with less patrol, uh, with less control. Um, so, for example, both Pakistan and Nigeria have now used drones to conduct targeted killings within their own borders. 
And that's a dangerous development, that if states start to be able to have drones that they can control their restive regions and engage in targeted killings and mass-scale surveillance in their own borders, you have to ask yourself, does the drone then begin to sort of empower the state in a way that makes it dangerous? And do you feel that like this kind of discussion that we're having today about drones, do you think that this happens time and time again, generation after generation, as there's a new uh, technological advancement within, uh, within warfare, that there's similar discussions about, about this? I think there is. And I think drones are, are a form of technology that are, is an important, uh, possibly game-changing kind of thing in the sense that it does democratize the air. It allows a lot more people to get into the air than they otherwise might be. So I think in that sense, uh, drones are an important technological development, but almost all of them, any kind of technology that you have, can tilt the balance of power to or away from the state. And drones can do both, right, in the sense that um, you can have the state now has the capacity for surveillance, it can engage in targeted killing, it extends the reach of violence outside its own borders. But similarly now we're seeing cases under which states now find themselves threatened with drones when terrorist organizations are ramming drones packed with explosives into their troops. Mm-hmm. And so what drones really do is they redistribute vulnerability, like any kind of new sort of form of military technology, they redistribute vulnerability. And we're going to see more about your thoughts and your data in relation to drones uh, in your upcoming book published by Oxford University Press called The Drone Age, How Drone Technology Will Change War and Peace. What, what are we going to get from that book that we, we don't see from your writings already? So that, that book is actually a little bit different. What I've tried to do in that book is, is first, it's written for a trade audience, so there's a little bit of descriptive uh, kind of these are what drones are and these are how they operate, but more what I've tried to do in that is to broaden the frame a bit. And the argument that that book basically makes is that drones change the incentive structures, risk calculations that states and non-state actors faced. And as a result, it's enabling new forms of activity. Sometimes those activities are good and sometimes those activities are bad. And so what I've done in that book is organized it in a very different way, whereas most of the published work I've done on drones has been about targeted killing, military uses of drones. Uh, In this book, I've done a couple different things. So there's a chapter on the terrorist itself use of drones, how Hamas and Hezbollah have drones, um, what Al-Qaeda has started to do with drones, how ISIS has built drone factories. So I have a chapter looking at how non-state actors have begun to adapt that to level the playing field. Um, I also have a chapter in there that I think has been relatively undercovered on how drones are being used for crisis mapping, for peacekeeping, and for humanitarian operations, and some of the pilot programs that are involved. We now know that the United Nations is looking into using drones for peacekeeping, for example, because they think that drones will be effective uh, to monitor refugee camps, to monitor areas under which civilians might be at risk. And that's actually leading the UN to behave differently as a result of the fact that they have drones, and it's changing the behavior of militants on the ground. Um, I also have a chapter in the book where I look at what drones are doing to militaries themselves. So rather than how militaries are using drones, how drones are affecting the military, reversing the arrow in a sense. And what you're seeing is that drones are placing huge stresses on the U.S. and U.K. militaries because the demand for surveillance and information from drones has gone way up. And that's put a lot of pressure on militaries to move into a high information environment. Um, And so what we're starting to see is some real changes in the way the drones are beginning to operate and how they're beginning to affect how different actors operate. And I think part of it is whether drones change the political decision-making as opposed to the military decision-making. In military decision-making, when you think about striking a particular individual, there are rules and regulations, there are procedures that are followed. Political decision-making is different. Are politicians more loose with the use of the force because of drones? Uh, And the book is going to explore that at the very end. The use of the force? Is that your Star Wars uh, fandom coming through there? (laughs) 
<laughs> absolutely. If I can work a Star Wars reference into that book, I absolutely will. There's got to be some way I can do it. Good man, good man. This is it. When do we expect this book out? Uh, well, I've got about seven of the nine chapters finished. I'm hoping to finish the rest of it in the first half of this year. So I'm hoping that the book will be submitted and uh, by the end, by the middle of this year, and hopefully out at the end of 2018, maybe early into 2019. Um, but I'd like it to be something that you could pick up if you wanted to read and learn a little bit more about how drones are changing things, um, but also something that gets you to think about how different sort of actors are responding to this form of technology. Once you democratize the air, what happens? Um, and it's got an interesting chapter, again, on the history of drones, on targeted killing and the use of drones, um, and even now the one I'm working on at the moment is on surveillance and how, how non-democratic governments are beginning to use drones to surveil their own population. Oh, it sounds like it's going to be a, a great, uh, great book that's hugely worthwhile and very important as well so I look forward to to reading that myself and i'm sure a, lot, a number of our listeners will be looking forward to to that coming out as well let's get back to the to the pieces that that influenced you as well as you said a lot of your research is focused on uh, on civil wars um, and one of the pieces that you put forward um, was Caliphas's piece uh, from 2006, published by Cambridge University Press, The Logic of Violence in Civil Wars. Um, what, uh, what was it about this, uh, this book that, that made, you, made you feel that this was hugely important and it influenced your thinking? I think it's a very valuable book on civil wars. I used to teach it as one of the courses, one of the key book texts I had uh, in uh, St. Andrews when I taught civil wars. Um, what Caliphas does in the book he has a number, has a lot of interesting data, case studies as well, but what he really does in the book is he identifies different strategies of violence, discriminant and indiscriminate, based on whether you know something about the loyalties of the population. Um, and for example, if you're in an environment where you can't know what the loyalties of the population are, by nature, by definition, your violence will be more indiscriminate. Whereas if I have high information about the loyalties of the population in the area, my violence will be more discriminant. And obviously, the case that is made there is for, is for more discriminate violence, if in fact actually you can do so. So what he really does is he connects the degree, with the violence itself to the degree of control that militants have on a particular area. And I think that's a really important insight for thinking about counterinsurgency, for thinking about civil wars. Sometimes we wonder about why it is that you see groups use a lot of violence in areas, and you think, well, why are you engaging in this indiscriminate form of violence? And he really recasts it as an information problem. It's an information problem about their loyalties, that you're using violence as a way of trying to do so. The second thing I thought was really interesting in that book, and that influenced how I wrote Violence After Wars, was he talks about violence as a top-down phenomenon, but as, also as a bottom-up phenomenon. That people in uh, contested environments, civil war environments, counterinsurgency environments, are oftentimes denouncing each other to the, the police and to the security authorities, that they're, they're using selective amounts of information, sometimes to settle personal grievances, sometimes to settle uh, criminal problems. And that was a useful way to think about the post-conflict violence itself, because when I looked at post-conflict violence, you saw this very similar dynamics, that people engaged in denunciations. Um, they would say to the peacekeepers after the war, so-and-so was um, engaged in the war and committed war crimes. In fact, actually, it was a personal grievance. And so I thought Kalivas's analysis of how bottom-up violence can influence the patterns that you see was really, really interesting and an extraordinarily valuable contribution. And you, I can see as well in the other piece that you put forward, uh, Charles Tilley's the Poli uh, Politics of Collective Violence, you can, you can see similar influences from a different point of view coming through as well. So what was it about, uh, what did Tilly give that uh, Kalivas didn't give? 
so the Tilly book came a little bit earlier. It was published in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I used the Tilly book for was in part to respond to that and to test some of it in my dissertation. And the Tilly book, The Politics of Collective Violence, uses a very different framework than what's by, used by Calivas and other people, and people who operate in what I would describe as a much more rationalist framework on political violence. The Tilly framework looks at... Um, causal mechanisms, how mechanisms of nonviolent contestation, protest, for example, can escalate into violence. And he saw it as a series of interlocking mechanisms. So, for example, one of his mechanisms that I thought was particularly important was brokerage, how people or organizations can connect people who would want to engage in violence uh, with the ability and the opportunity to engage in violence. Uh, and if you see that in a terrorism context, we see plenty of examples of brokerage. Uh, when you see people who are funneling people from sort of mosques or other sites where they might be vulnerable and looking for some way um, to express themselves into militant organizations, that's a classic example of what Tilly would describe as brokerage. And so I think Tilly does a very, very good job of connecting nonviolent and violent politics and showing how they shift from one to the other. Uh, and I used his book um, with my dissertation itself because I found that causal mechanisms approach extraordinarily helpful to explain what I was seeing in post-conflict violence. Um, and I found that it was one of the books that I found that kind of gave me a framework and helped me make sense of what I was seeing and helped me sort of form the dissertation in a way that was coherent. And he was kind enough actually to meet with me and talk to me about the dissertation when I was working on it uh, in 2002, 2003, short, you know, a couple of years before he passed away. And he was extraordinarily kind and helpful. And so I'm always very grateful to Charles Tilly for the, the time he took to talk to a, a sort of graduate student who was struggling with how he should frame his problem for his dissertation. Well, that's brilliant. It's, it's great to have that that insight from the from the author themselves, and uh, yeah. it's it's something that's that's hugely valuable for for graduate students, um, time and time again. Um, and I can see as well, like when we're we're talking about uh, issues like brokerage and and other issues mentioned there, you can see it. Uh, you can see it as being influential on the final piece of yours that we're going to discuss today in depth. It's um, Bargaining, Fear and Denial, Explaining Violence Against Civilians in Iraq, 2004 to 2007, published in Terrorism and Political Violence uh, back in 2009. Um, before we get into an in-depth discussion on what exactly was the aim of this article um, and what were the, the core findings that you had? So what I was interested in looking at in that case was trying to find a kind of analytic frame under which you could explain the violence in Iraq. And and the reason I was doing that at the time was there was a lot of people who were arguing that you know, it was nihilism, that, that what we had seen there was a country that had just descended into a mass-scale bloodletting and there was no sort of strategic pattern to it. Uh, and I was determined to, to prove that that wasn't in fact actually right. So one of the things I did is I negotiated with the Iraq body count for the release of their data, and I did some analysis of the Iraq body count data, and they were kind enough to release it to me for that article. And the, what I did in the article was there were really two parts that I thought were important. The first was I, I made a, a frame, uh, a sort of theoretical frame, arguing that there were really three purposes that you saw to the violence that overlapped and escalated. One was that you saw bargaining both between and within groups, the second is that you saw a fear dynamic, that is to say a conflict, a conflict spiral, much in the way you might see with the security dilemma. And the third is that you saw attempts to deny access to the U.S., the U.N., and other people they saw as related to that uh, occupation, access to specific political sites and authority. Hence, bargaining fear and denial is the kind of three general broad frames for the violence itself. 
and to argue that those three overlapped and produced what we saw as the patterns of violence. What was important as a finding from the empirical side was how much of the violence was intra-sectarian. In other words, it was Shia versus Shia or Sunni versus Sunni as opposed to a Sunni-Shia sectarian violence. And that was an important frame because much of the discussion of the Iraq insurgency had said, look, this is a sectarian civil war. It's Sunni versus Shia. The data actually showed that quite a lot of the violence was internal. It was inside Shia sectarian environment, Shia versus Shia militias, Sunni versus Sunni militias, which gets feeds right back into that question about sort of violence being uh, transactional in post-conflict violence and indeed in conflict environments as well. And you, you, see, you don't just see this in somewhere like Iraq. You've seen this the world over that oftentimes the the victims the more likely victims uh, by a by a group or by individuals are are the people that they they claim to be representing themselves you you've seen it across history and uh, and geographically as well you mentioned yeah. within this that certain groups by occupation and professional class are are disproportionately victimized what uh, occupation and professional classes were you, um, were you referring to here and um, and why is this the case uh, what you started to see was in many cases professional classes would be attacked. Um, so doctors, for example, right? You saw cases under which uh, people who were high-ranking professionals from those environments, partially because they could fund the insurgency, uh, partially because um, they were easy targets and they could be shaken down for extortion and money. So one of the things we saw in Iraq was a lot of cases under which you get a letter that said you have to leave your house or you have to pay this kind of ransom. And so you saw the upper middle class being targeted and you saw people who could potentially support their own group through things like medical care. And you also see, and you also mentioned here, that a lot of times these groups are they're signaling their strength and they're they're trying to show not just not to just to achieve their end goals, but w within this competitive environment that they're um, that they want to show we are the strongest of these groups uh, operating here. Um, I think that's something hugely important that we need to to look at when we're when we're looking at the violence. As you said, it's not just about the. Um, how you can define them uh, on a sectarian basis, the violence isn't always for that reason as well. I think it's, a, it's an argument that we see for some of the older literature, Alex Schmidt and others have made this argument that violence is a communicative strategy and that you see violence as a form of communication in environments. And you have to think about environments like Iraq as noisy environments, right? There's huge amounts of transactional violence, there's criminal violence, there's expressive forms of violence, you have an occupation present, and amidst that you have armed groups trying to find ways to communicate their strength and their intent. And so sometimes targeting civilians, sometimes targeting vulnerable groups, targeting different sets of communities are useful ways to signal and communicate in an environment where there's a lot more noise than there is signal. Yeah. And that would be the way I would describe it. And how did this affect uh, the United States efforts to, to bring about a, a functioning state? Did it deny these efforts, do you feel? I'm not sure that it denied these efforts. I mean, I, I would still say the story of Iraq is still unfolding. I mean, you could make an argument Iraq is still... Uh, in the middle of the same war that it was in 2003, or at least it's coming out of it now that it's past ISIS. I think what's interesting if you look at the patterns of violence in Iraq is that you had you know, an incredible amount of bloodletting from 2003 until 2008. I mean, estimates are 150,000, 200,000 people were killed. A million were created as refugees. The violence dampens down in 2008. Essentially, once the U.S. restores a degree of local control with the sons of Iraq or the local militias that were allowed to control their own communities. Uh, and that seems to suggest that once you delegate policing lower, that you can begin to police and protect your own communities. The problem is that unfolds when the central government doesn't reward those militias and then later you get ISIS. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's a really interesting problem where the U.S. essentially had to make peace with allowing a significant amount of local control and autonomy by these militia organizations in order to buy itself a reprieve from violence in around 2008 to maybe 2012. Um, and so I think – did it undermine their strategy? I think it gave them a window to get out in that period of time, but only by allowing local control. And that local control means that like any good principal Asian problem, once I delegate control down to the agent, I lose control over what they do. And we found lots of examples of those local militias engaging in gratuitous violence, criminal violence in their own areas. Uh, so – I think it's an almost irreducible problem from that vantage point. You should police at the lowest possible level, but you lose a degree of control. And so what would be what would be the ideal environment in, in relation to these groups if for any any body, be it a state body, a non-state body, a multi multi-state body, to try and bring peace to Iraq? Where do you would it would it be is there a need for a unified groups subsuming these small groups? Would that be uh, would that be more effective so you could be able to negotiate or what, or what do you feel would be the ideal setting or is there one? I, I, there is no ideal. I think in all cases, if you're looking at Iraq, you're looking at a second best solution. Mm. I think what we've seen consistently over time has been the Shia dominated government has been very reluctant to allow the Sunni local militias to remain on the payroll. And what we saw in 2010 and 2011 was that they refused to put them on the payroll. They refused to put the sons of Iraq on the payroll. When they did that, suddenly you wind up getting this mobilization that led to ISIS. If I were advising the government now, it would be to suggest that you need to allow a large degree of local autonomy and self-policing for a number of years while you build the capacity of the state. Um, but that to pursue those militia groups that are patrolling and protecting Sunni communities is dangerous. I mean, you know, the sectarian dimension of the Iraq conflict is extraordinarily important. When the United States shattered the state, you wind up handing government to a sectarian Shia majority. And the Sunnis in Iraq see it as a Shia government. Well, you... If you were the Shia government, your choice is allow Sunni militias to patrol Sunni areas and give them local security, or break those Sunni militias down and reassert central government control. To do so is to reassert control of the Shia that have been engaged in a sectarian war against the Sunnis and to reinflame the conflict. I would allow local con local control of the militias within limits, right? No human rights abuses, no egregious forms of violence, a degree of policing over what the militias do, but disaggregated authority. But no government wants to do that. No government wants to say, after you know, the years of violence and trauma that Iraq has received, to say, well, no, we're, not, we're just going to simply accept we don't control the Kurdish regions and we don't control Sunni minority regions. Uh, no government wants to do that. But that's, in fact, actually, I think, what they would need to do. Uh, and if I were the U.S., that's what I'd be encouraging them to do, to allow those militias to remain in place, to allow them to provide local security within limits, no human rights abuses, no egregious violence against minorities and others, um, and accept that it's going to be a 20-year process to rebuild the state. Yeah. Um, but, like, that's what you're saying that you would advise them to do, but obviously things are going a different different direction. So what do you see is the future on the current track that's being taken? I'm very concerned that there will not be... I mean, the, government, the current government in Iraq has been better uh, than what we saw under the Maliki government. Mm -hmm. I, I'm concerned that you will see in another two to three years, unless there is genuine integration of the Sunni minority community, a degree of self-policing and a control of corruption, you'll see another eruption of a jihadi organization. Okay. Um, that what you tend to see is the jihadi organization is not... This, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of systematic misrule. And so you had al-Qaeda in Iraq that morphed into ISIS. ISIS has now been shattered, but unless the Iraqi government engages in good governance, I'm worried you'd get ISIS part two, whatever that would be. Oh, that's, that, that fills me full of joy there now. <laughs> well, 
Well, especially because if you know, I mean, most of the time, like a lot of terrorist organizations, every subsequent evolution gets more violent. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I would be very reluctant to see what happens after this. I mean, the United States has spent a tremendous blood and treasure in a fairly coherent strategy to use air assets and ground assets to clear ISIS out of areas in Iraq and Syria. Now that you've done that, the emphasis has to be on inclusion, good governance, and a degree of local autonomy that you have to build in loyalty to the state. And you have to accept that it's not just going to be the case that all Iraqi citizens are naturally loyal to the state. If you're a Sunni, your experience of the state in the last 15 years has been unrelenting violence. And so you need to be careful about that. Yeah. We need those, those nuanced understandings and therefore those nuanced responses as well. A lot of this uh, podcast and a lot of your research has uh, understandably focused on U.S. responses. Uh, however, in, um, in 2018, you're releasing an edited volume uh, published by Manchester University Press called Non-Western Responses to Terrorism. I know this isn't one of the ones that we've uh, scheduled to talk about today, but I think it's, it's, it's important to mention that it's actually already been uh, mentioned uh, on previous podcasts. Um, George Lasmar and Rashmi Singh talked about their chapters in relation to Brazil and India. Um, and it's something that we're not really, we haven't historically seen in the terrorism literature. Um, what's, the, what's the aim of this book then? And, and what do you, what's it going to cover? Uh, so this is a project that's been long gestating, and it's not in my normal lane, as you rightly point out. I mean, this is a project that is very different than what I normally do, but I can explain a little bit about the origin of it. Uh, when I was teaching uh, the terrorism and counterterrorism courses at St. Andrews and elsewhere since I've been teaching them at LaSalle, one of the things I noticed was that there was a substantial um, bias in the literature towards covering what I would describe as Western cases. So if you study counterterrorism, you find a lot written on the United States, a lot written on the UK. You find a lot written on Western Europe. There was a good volume um, done by Alex Schmidt called Western Responses to Terrorism in, I think it was 1983, 84. Um, and part of what I noticed was that you didn't see a lot of coverage of non-Western cases. If you were looking in the English language literature for how, for example, China deals with terrorism or how Japan deals with terrorism, you would find very little. Uh, and certainly if you were looking at how African states dealt with terrorism, you'd see very little. What you found tended to be done from a U.S. perspective. So there were a lot of places that were written to say, Egypt's counterterrorism policy is insufficient. It should do the following things the United States government wants. Uh, that's not written from the inside of the perspective of the country. It's written from the perspective of the United States and what we expect to see. And I noticed that there really wasn't much coverage of a lot of part of the, a lot of the rest of the world in this. And I thought there was some value in trying to bring in voices, scholars that had experience in countries uh, that often read the language that had to read the language, uh, and that could write something that said how their society saw terrorism. And I want to emphasize in this, that, and I say this at the beginning of the book, this is not an Orientalist kind of approach which says, well, you know, the United States and Britain are right in the way that they see terrorism, or Europe's right in the way they see terrorism, and these other countries are wrong. It's arguing that terrorism is understood in a culturally coded, historically coded way, and that we need to be sensitive to that when you're looking at counterterrorism cooperation. So if I'm the United States dealing with Egypt, I'm the United States dealing with South Africa, I have to understand how they see terrorism. And just as an easy illustration of why this is important, there are a lot of cases under which the governments of states in the non-Western world, broadly understood, were once called terrorists. Um, if you were dealing with an ANC-dominated government in South Africa, they were once described by the United States government as a terrorist organization. And so now you're talking to them about terrorism. Do they understand it differently, given that they were once described as terrorists? How does China think about terrorism relative to its other security threats? Um, how does Russia see terrorism? 
And so I spent a while trying to find authors um, from all around the world um, that would write about the historical, political, cultural, and religious drivers under which the, the way that their country sees terrorism. Um, and that was an extremely difficult volume to put together. It has 19 chapters um, from all around the world. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be really revealing when people get a chance to read the accounts that they have about how you know, the Lebanese government sees terrorism, given that Hezbollah is part of the government sometimes, or how China sees, government as one of, uh, China sees terrorism as one of the evils, along with separatism and nationalism. Now, you often see that countries are coming into it from a very different cultural frame than the United States, Britain, Israel, Western Europe, and others have come through. Um, so I've tried really to cover the countries that aren't covered in every place. Now, obviously, you know, you have to make choices and you don't cover every country that you'd like to. But that's the general sort of thrust of the volume. And were there any surprises for you when you when you look at these case studies uh, of approaches that have been taken? There were some genuine surprises. I mean, so if you look at the Saudi cases, the Saudi cases tend to deal Saudi Arabia counterterrorism policy suggests that it's a kind of question of moral or personal failings or, or deviance and that you can be corrected that terrorism is a misunderstanding and that someone needs to be argued away from terrorism because it reflects a form of religious misunderstanding. Um, if you see Japan's approach, Japan's approach is fascinating from a kind of quietist perspective where they've had an experience with terrorism, uh, but the government tends to try to deal with it in a very different kind of non-forcefully related way. Um, some states try to link terrorism to greater evil. So China, you see, links terrorism to nationalism, separatism, to give itself an excuse to be able to, um, you know, suppress organizations that might threaten the, the authority of the central government. And so what you see is terrorism is remarkably culturally coded um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, and that countries are approaching it with different presuppositions than the United States, whether, for example, it's criminal or elsewhere, uh, criminal or political forms of violence, and particularly whether it's irredeemable. I mean, the United States, especially during the Bush administration and elsewhere, tried to, tended to treat terrorism as a kind of irredeemable form of political violence, uh, no negotiation with terrorists. That's not how much of the rest of the world sees it. And so I think the case studies themselves real very, very, very different accounts of how terrorism is seen and very different accounts of the policy uh, responses to it. Uh, it's, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to, to reading this. I've had a, a sneak preview, as I said, to, to the Brazilian case study and the Indian case study. And I, found them, I found them really, really uh, insightful. And I've learned, I learned more from those ones, as I said, on, on George's podcast. I learned more from that. Than I uh, than I did on uh, on many of the others, so it's uh, I'm I'm sure the rest of the chapters will be will be just as good as well, um, so we're we're nearly finished up now. But I, as as regular listeners will know, I like to to finish up by asking um, asking how do you feel the area of terrorism studies is uh, at the moment how do you feel the health of it is at the moment is it stagnated as mark sageman would say i know you're not purely in terrorism studies but you you've got a good understanding of it so uh, what's your views i mean i consider myself sort of half terrorism half political violence i suppose you'd say um in terms of the work that i do i i don't agree with mark sageman that the terrorism is in a kind of moribund state that the research on terrorism is in a kind of moribund state i i that's one point where i would sort of part company with him 
Um, I think actually the truth is that there's been a number of advances that are important in the last 10 years, one of which is that we have a lot better data. Uh, even if you were to go back to when I started my dissertation, um, the level of political violence data has just increased enormously, the level of terrorism data, obviously the GTD being an important part of that, you know, hugely valuable resource, but a number of other data sets that have been made publicly available. So we have much richer data than we had, and that's revealing a lot of different things that weren't able to be revealed before. There's also been an experimental turn. Um, in at least some of the political violence and counterinsurgency literature, less so in terrorism for obviously methodological and, and ethical reasons, um, that has been really very valuable in advancing the field. And I think what I'm seeing in terrorism is a wave of young researchers that are doing really tremendous work and advancing the field with a degree of methodological and empirical rigor that wasn't always there um, you know, in, in some of the stuff in the 60s and the 70s. Some of the stuff in the 60s and 70s was obviously very good. Some of it wasn't. Uh, and I'm seeing much more methodological and empirical rigor. So I think it's actually in, in fairly good health. Um, I mean, there's always the danger with terrorism studies that you succumb to hype, that you succumb to kind of chasing headlines and others. But I think there is a core of researchers that take the key questions as very serious uh, and are really doing interesting work that are revealing new things about the phenomenon itself. I think we have a richer understanding of the variables that matter, richer understanding of the dynamics of violence than we had 25 years ago. That's a much more positive way to end than you predicting there'll be a second ISIS coming anyway. So <laughs> I think we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for uh, spending the past hour with us now and letting us into your understanding about your research. Um, be sure to check out all of the, the pieces that were discussed in today's podcast by going to our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. Follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. And while you're at it, if, uh, if you liked what, you, what you've been hearing from the podcast series, be sure to rate us in uh, wherever you find, uh, find uh, the Talking Terror podcast. It makes us... Uh, more easily accessible uh, and more easily found by by others who are searching for it. So, uh, and be sure to tune back next week where I'll be talking to Dr. Noemi Buchana from University College London. Until then, I'll chat to you soon. Bye.